0: As Americans, we think that we get this gospel right away. Oh yeah, this is that one time when Jesus gave us the First Amendment to the Constitution. Neat. Two problems with that approach. First, do we really think that every Christian from 33 AD until 1789 AD missed the meaning of this passage, and it took the Enlightenment deists, who were our founding fathers, to be like oh, we finally get the Lord, we finally understand Jesus. Second, if we ask about the phrase, if we think about the phrase, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto God what is God's, we have to further ask, well, what's not God's? As Christians, we would hold that everything good in the world comes from God. And so, if we're supposed to give to God everything that belongs to him, then the only thing that's left for Caesar is the sin and corruption of this world. Another way we might phrase that is that government is only good insofar as it acts in accord with God. And so, as we render to God, government may be part of that. We may render unto Caesar part of what we have to render unto God. But, if they're in opposition to each other... If we only render parts of ourselves to God and parts of ourselves to Caesar, we shouldn't be rendering anything to Caesar, because it all belongs to God. And it's interesting when you note the first reading that the church chose to pair with this gospel. On Sundays, the way it works is you have a gospel and you go through it over time, and then the church picks a first reading that's supposed to reflect the truths of that gospel as given to us in the Old Testament. Well, what does the first reading say? God is pointing to Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, not a Jewish king, but a pagan king, and he's saying, I have called you by your name, given you a title, though you knew me not. It is I who arm you, though you know me not, so that toward the rising and the setting of the sun, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. The church's own interpretation of this gospel is that anything good given to a civil leader comes from God. Insofar as Cyrus the Great was acting in accord with the will of God that was given to him by the power of God. Insofar as Cyrus, or the Babylonian kings that he overthrew, were acting against God. God not only withdraws his power, but will often overthrow them. Notice, then, how brilliant Jesus' answer is to this question. Because the Pharisees are trying to trap him. And they know that if he says not to pay the temple tax, not to pay the census tax, sorry, that the Roman authorities are going to arrest him and get him out of the way. But if if he says to pay the census tax... Well, then all the Jews who are mad about being occupied by the Romans are going to turn against Jesus. It's a a pretty good trap. So Jesus gives an answer that the secular authorities are going to be really happy about. Render under Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, the Romans are going to say, great, everything is Caesar's. We're pagans, we don't have this creator god, and so we have all these individual gods. Caesar is a god. So yeah, absolutely, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. At the same time, all the religious Jews are going to hear Jesus and be like, well, there's only one Creator God, everything belongs to Him, so we don't have to render anything at the season. Depending on the people's faith perspective going into the question, they hear exactly what they want to hear coming out of the question. It's determined by their level of faith. Final note on the Gospel that's going to bring us into the second half of this homily. Notice who is asking the questions. What we know from history is that the Pharisees and the Herodians have no reason to ally with each other. The Herodians are those who follow and support King Herod the Great and his sons. This is a man who was put on the throne by the Romans, essentially to govern in their place. But he's still a Jew, so they were hoping the Jews would be happy with that arrangement. He is... Nobody's definition of a strictly observant Jew, and he is not of the line of David, even though he's a Jewish king. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are very strictly observant Jews. They see themselves as those who follow exactly everything that the prophets and the law says, including the restoration of the Davidic kingship. So those two have nothing in common, except that they are in power. The Herodians are in power because a Herod sits on the throne. The Pharisees are in power because they are the most popular and revered religious leaders of the time. Jesus comes about, and he undercuts worldly power. This is what Jesus does. When we live for something transcendent, something beyond ourselves, when we know that this world has no power over us, then suddenly worldly power looks silly and small. And so everyone with worldly power ultimately finds a way to oppose Jesus, because Jesus is a threat to their power if they have not given that power over to him already. Huh. Two tribalistic groups of people who have nothing in common, but only ally when they want to go against Jesus and Christian teaching. Where is Father Moore going to go with the rest of this homily? it's not obvious already, I'm going to attack our political parties. Both sides get it today, so, you know, strap in for your side of this. How are we supposed to interpret this as modern-day Americans? What are we supposed to do with this render unto Caesar, render unto God? Well, I would argue that we have deeply misunderstood the Lord in this gospel passage, and we have believed the lie that our religious lives should be kept private, while our political lives are the only things that are allowed to be public. That we can only render to God what happens within the walls of our homes and our churches, What we can render unto Caesar our votes, our money, and our advocacy, our bumper stickers, our internet bubbles, and our tribes, that's a lie. Everything has to be rendered unto God. We can't separate public and private. So, where have we fallen off? Well, we have to remember, rendering unto God means rendering everything. And I'd say that's especially true of our hearts, our minds, and our loyalties. I speak to plenty of people who leave the church, and I'd say, you know, maybe half of them, it's hard to say, but maybe half of them leave the church because the church doesn't have the right opinions on this, that, or the other public or political topic. That means that as our political parties draw us away from the teachings of the church, they become truly an existential threat to our faith. They destroy our church by picking off members one by one. We have to be very critical of these parties, and particularly of the influence we allow these parties to have on us. Most specifically what I mean is, when there's an issue and the church and the party disagree, how many of us follow the party instead of the church? Well, I have numbers. I've been doing a lot of research this week. What you look for is places where the two parties are massively divergent, and especially places where two parties are massively divergent, having started in the same place where they start at about the same opinion level, and then they diverge. Because it means that we're sorting based on our parties. This is something where we're listening to our parties as we diverge from each other. If we listen to our parties in that divergence, okay, that happens in politics. But if in the course of that we're taken away from the church, that's where the problem happens. So, we're going to start with the Democrats. And with the Democratic Party, it's nowhere more obvious, this trend, than with abortion. Gallup asks the question, under what circumstances should abortion be legal? In 1975, two years after Roe v. Wade, Republicans and Democrats had nearly identical views on abortion. For example, with 18% of Republicans and 19% of Democrats saying that abortion should be legal under any circumstance up until the point of birth. The parties were the same on that question. Any circumstances up to the point of birth, 18 and 19%. Today, that number is 8% for the Republicans and 60% for the Democrats. 60% of Democrats believe abortion should be legal up until the point of birth. Given those numbers, can we deny that political parties have had influence here? Can we deny that the Democratic Party has made abortion more and more central to its identity as a party and that this has had a strong influence on its people? Now, fine, let the political parties stake out their positions. That's the point of political parties. But for us as Catholics, can we deny that many Catholic Democrats have followed their party on this issue rather than their church? The church hasn't budged since 1975, and yet the numbers have gone like this. Can we deny that many Catholic Democrats have rendered their minds and their loyalties to Caesar, in this case, rather than to God? Now, the Republicans. For them, it's best seen in a constellation of three different issues. Immigration, the environment, and the death penalty. Some numbers. Today, the death penalty's gone up and down, so the historical trends aren't particularly helpful. But today, 82% of Republicans consider the death penalty moral in this country, compared to 40% of Democrats. That's a 42% split with the environment, asked whether the protection of the environment should be given priority even if it curbed economic growth. In 1984, the parties were about the same. 58% of Republicans, 62% of Democrats favored the environment even if it curbed economic growth. Today that number is 78% for Democrats. That's a 16-point increase, but it's only 20% for Republicans. That is a 38% 38% decrease since 1984. And with immigration, the parties were about the same in 2001, with 30 percent, 37% of Democrats and 42% of Republicans desiring less immigration to the United States. But today, wildly divergent, 22 years later. Today that number is 17% of Democrats, a 20% decrease, And 69% of Republicans, a 27-point increase, want fewer immigrants to the United States. Now, the Republicans will argue, and they're right, that these are prudential issues that the Church doesn't have a dogmatic teaching on. So Catholics are allowed to hold divergent political solutions. That's true. But the point of the homily is the pattern. It's the pattern that's the problem. The last three popes have all held that the death penalty is no longer necessary in countries like the United States, where we have maximum security prisons. Pope Francis has published two two full encyclicals on the environment, and our need to look after it and take care of it. And every other homily that the current pope gives seems to be on our need to look after migrants and refugees, as the poor and downtrodden among us. So the Republican Party's long-term loyalty to the death penalty, its more recent trend toward denying climate change, and its absolute insistence on painting immigrants as criminals rather than the poor and the marginalized, has caused many Catholic Republicans to diverge from their church on these issues. Breaking with the church on one debatable issue, maybe. Breaking with the Church on all of the debatable issues is a pattern that's a problem. Because again, where do our loyalties lie? Are we rendering our minds and our hearts to Caesar or to God? Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is important to engage with our faith. I'm not pushing blind loyalty. I want you to think about these things. I want you to pray about them. But we have to take a very critical look at who is influencing us? Do we spend as much time, for example, listening to the Catechism in a Year podcast, not a heavy lift. you can do it when you're brushing your teeth in the morning, as we do listening to CNN or Fox News? Who is influencing us? Are we following the homilies and letters of Pope Francis and Archbishop Achen as closely as we follow the tweets of Joe Biden and Donald Trump? We have to be honest with ourselves. How much this year have I repaid to Caesar, and how much this year of myself have I repaid to God?